We're going to take a short break from our regular verse-by-verse -verse studies because about a month ago, well, more than a month now, we had our five-year anniversary service. Do you remember that? That was really great. We talked about uh, the book of Joshua and how the tribes of Manasseh still had land to take. And we talked about how we still have work for us to do that God has given to us. And at the prayer meeting that night, which was, that was a fantastic prayer meeting. I remember it very well. We prayed for the Lord to grant us vision because for a long time it had been get the church planted. Get the church planted, you know, get in the building, fill out the building. Well, we've done all of that. And it's like, all right, well, now what do we do? Do we just do church for the rest of our lives? And yeah, kind of. But the Lord also loves to give us a vision of what's next. And I will say that as we prayed for that, God has answered that. And we're going to take three weeks here to discuss there's various things related to our mission as a church, our identity as a church, uh, the things that we value the most as a church, where we're going and what the plans are uh, going forward. And I'm hoping that you will get familiar with us as a ministry, but also you will get excited and you'll catch the vision as well. So uh, today is all about our identity as a church. I don't really have a title, but identity might be a good one. Uh, we're going to look at today who we are as a church what we're doing as a church, and where we're going as a church. And this is not just you know, my best ideas. We're going to open up the scriptures and see what God has to say, because believe it or not, God has some pretty defined opinions on what a church ought to be doing. Does anybody know that? Amen, right? So we're going to ask this question today. What is the purpose of a church? I was asked this when I was closing on my first house, believe it or not. The uh, realtor from the other team, I guess that's what you call it, uh, she wasn't saying much until I mentioned, oh yeah, we're coming down to plant a church. And she sat up and she said, what do we need another church around here for? Yeah, real nice, right? When I'm sitting there paying a bunch of money to her. But she said, what do you need a church? There's a church over there. There's a church over there. What, what do we need these for? We already got one. And uh, I didn't say much about it at that point, but maybe now I can answer that question. What is a church even for? Is a church just there to be like, you know, it's like a Starbucks. We have one. You know, we have Walmart. We have a Walmart. What do we need another one for? The, what's the purpose of this? We might even ask the question this way. If Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and we just read the book of Revelation about how we're ending up in heaven in the eternal state one day, why are we still here? What's the point of Christians on the earth if Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven? Have you ever wondered this question before? Maybe your kids have asked this question before. Maybe you've been going through something real difficult at work or something. You come home and say, Lord, shouldn't you just take us home anyway? Like, what do we really need to be here for? Like, you, you kind of done everything and, you know, this is nice and all, but I'd really like to go to heaven now. Well, Jesus gives us the answer to that question, as I'm sure you know. Turning your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. And we're going to read the last three verses, which I'm sure y'all are very familiar with these. I hope you are. If not, then you're going to get familiar with it because this is a passage of scripture called the Great Commission. The last words that Jesus had for his church prior to his ascension to heaven. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, who's them? The 11 disciples. Jesus told them, get out of Jerusalem, go to Galilee. He meets them in Galilee, and then he tells them this. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
First thing we see in that, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the boss. He's in charge. He's the one that has died on the cross, gone down into the grave, led captivity captive. He's about to ascend to heaven to be with his Father, and then he will return on the earth. He has all authority. So at that point, I mean, just think for a second. What would you do if you had all authority in heaven and on earth? I imagine we could come up with a few silly things and maybe a few nice things to make everybody like us. But all authority. What is Jesus about to say to us? We're his grateful servants. He died on the cross for us. He rescued us from death. He sanctified us by his Holy Spirit. And he says, here's what I have to say to you. Then every single one of us ought to be, name it, Lord. Tell me what you want. And he gives us this long statement. But the, the operative verb here, a little bit of grammar, not a whole lot. Just stick with me, okay? A little bit of grammar here. The operative verb in this sentence Jesus gives us is make disciples. Make disciples. So you read this, and what is the main thing Jesus tells them to do? You might say, go. Well, kind of, but the main thing he's saying is make disciples. How do we know this? Because the word make disciples is in the imperative form in Greek. But you know what imperative means? If not, it's okay. An imperative is a command. Maybe you've heard somebody say, it is imperative that you get this done. Meaning, I'm not asking, I'm telling you to get this done. Maybe you remember the different kinds of sentences, declarative, interrogatory, and imperative. An imperative sentence is telling you to do something. The other three verbs that are in this sentence are what are called participles, meaning they are, they're like ing words. The main one is make disciples, and then he gives us three subordinate participles that tell us how we are to do that. The things that we are to do in the process of making disciples. And these are go, baptize, and teach. So the number one thing the church is sent out to do is to make disciples. And the first part of that is that we go. We've got to get up and go somewhere. Now, if you're called like me, you're supposed to leave your home and go to a different state or even a different country, perhaps, or even just to leave this ministry and go to a different one. For the rest of us, it might not be getting up and actually going as much as getting up out of your chair and going to the next person and helping them become a disciple. Or instead of sitting in the church all the time, getting up and going into the ministry, serving, whether it's at the media desk or on the, the festivals that we have or any such thing. Get up and get involved. Go. I mean, they're sitting in Jerusalem. This is the, the well, Galilee at the time, but they're sitting in Israel, the center of the world at this point. And Jesus is like, nobody else knows about this. You got to go. You got to go. And there are some that are called to go to the other side of the world, but all of us are called at least to go to the other side of the street. The second thing is baptize. This is to make new converts. Y'all know this. Baptism is the initiation, right, of a Christian. You're dunked under the water. It symbolizes death to the old life, and you're brought out. It symbolizes resurrection, just like Jesus rose from the dead. So go out and make new converts. He says, I don't want you just to go and be Christian somewhere. Sometimes we get that wrong, right? Go be Christian over here. Just don't tell nobody about it. That's not what Jesus said. He said, go baptize. You need to be evangelizing and leading people to the place where they're ready to make that commitment to Christ. And while some have overplayed it, we want to be careful that we, we don't downplay that initial moment of conversion and decision too much. Because some folks want to be like, well, if all you care about is the initial moment of decision and you don't care about what comes after that, then you failed. It's like, okay, I agree with you. 
But there still needs to be an initial moment of decision. There still needs to be a moment where somebody says, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm going to leave behind my old life. What do I got to do? And as the apostles would say, repent and be baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Baptize. Make new converts. And number three, teaching. So we're going baptizing and teaching as we make disciples. Teach. Instruct them. We don't want just to lead them to salvation and then leave them alone. We want to lead them to Jesus and then teach them, what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to live as he taught us? And this is not just doctrinal instruction, but it's also practical instruction for everyday life. Some churches are good at one or the other. They're really good at teaching you the doctrine of justification, sanctification, glorification, and the ins and outs of the Trinity and the different covenants. And that's, that's all good. We love to talk about that. But... There are other churches that are really good at teaching the practical side of things. Loving your neighbor, taking good care of your family, working hard in the workplace, keeping control of your language and the things you post online. Like that, they're very good at that. But you don't want to have those things in distinction to one another. They ought to be brought together to make a whole believer. That we believe these things, so we act this way. And we act this way because we believe these things. So Jesus tells him, I want you to go out and make disciples, and here's how you do it. You got to go, you got to baptize, and you got to teach. So the purpose of a Christian church is to do what Jesus did. What was Jesus' ministry while he was alive? He was making disciples. He was teaching the crowds, he was teaching the smaller groups, he was teaching the twelve, and even then he had that inner circle of three, Peter, James, and John, that he instructed. He showed them how to live. He brought them with him everywhere he went so that they could imitate him. He answered their questions when he had them so that by the time he was done, they could go and do the same thing for somebody else. So that they, who are fully-fledged disciples of Christ, could find another person and make them a fully-fledged disciple of Christ. And that is our purpose, to multiply ourselves by engaging in the same process, to, you might say, fill the world with Christians. Why? Because we really like Christians and because we want to maintain the culture and say, ah, no, because we love Jesus and because he saved us from death and the grave. And we've got priorities that are so much bigger than everybody else's. And along the way, will society and our neighborhood and everything else get some benefits? You better believe it. But the main thing is leading people from death to life and then showing them how to live. So you can have a great life-saving surgery, but what are you going to need after that? You need physical therapy. You might have, you know, especially if you're coming back from death to life, you might have to learn how to walk again. Hey, look, they're back to life. Like, great, but they can't walk. They can't talk. They don't know what to do. It would be a cruel doctor that would leave a patient in a state like that. And just like we as Christians don't do that. When babies are born, we don't just celebrate and say, good job, everybody, and kind of leave the baby sitting on the table and we all go home. <laughs> it was a successful delivery. And that baby's sitting there like, now what do I do, right? Oh, I'm sure they'll figure it out. They've got instincts, right? It's already in them. But sometimes we do that with new believers, right? They're born again. The Holy Spirit will show them. Well, yeah, but the Holy Spirit also brought you into the process, right? The hospital will insist you take that baby home, I have found. It's like, listen, I already have a couple of these. Isn't, do I really need to bring home another one? To fill the world with Christians, make disciples. That's the purpose of a Christian, first of all. That's why you are alive. That's why Jesus is delaying his return. Because there are those who still might be saved. In this community and all over the world, we see them all the time. When we go into the prisons, when we go into the schools, even here in this room, we see people get saved. 
Which means you've you got to go, wow, I'm, I'm kind of glad Jesus delayed a little bit longer so that he could find salvation or that she could get saved. And now they're going to take that on and pass it to their whole family and make some more disciples. So then if we're going to look at that as the general purpose that is given to every Christian, what are we doing here as a church? I hope we're doing that. But specifically, what are we doing in order to obey that, that commission as a congregation? You know, you have to answer that question personally. But as a congregation here, this group, what are we doing to fulfill that commission? Maybe you've never thought about it that way before. Maybe you've thought, well, the church is where you go to get your blessing and to get taught a little bit and meet some people, and then you go home, and that's kind of your religious duty. And it's not that that's a bad thing, but that's certainly not everything. That's not even most things, actually. This is not a service that is being provided for you. This is something that we come together for a purpose and for a reason. So as we, as a congregation, try to obey the commission, here's what we're doing. We are working to build a local congregation of believers. Formerly, the plan was to plant a local congregation. That's done. Hallelujah, Jesus, but it's time to move on. It's time to build this congregation. I know you're going to say, well, God builds the church. Yeah, but who does he use, guys? Come on. He's using us to build this congregation in all ways, not just in size, but also spiritually, also in our own knowledge and our own effectiveness in ministry. That that's why we are here, is to take this group of people and equip them for the work to which God has called them. There are some people that don't like the idea of building new churches. They say, we've got enough churches, as I said. There's already a good one in town. What do we need a new one for? Well, there's lots of reasons. First of all, as I shared the stats with you a few weeks ago, uh, population growth is increasing and church growth is declining, meaning more churches are closing and not enough are being planted to keep up even with population. So if it feels like there are way more churches than we need, it's actually not true that there are fewer churches per person in the United States than there ever has been since we first began. So there's that. But also, this is exactly what Paul did. Isn't that what Paul did in the book of Acts? They were sitting in the church at Antioch, and the Holy Spirit came and began to speak to the elders and said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And they knew what that was. So they sent them out on their missionary journey. They went to Cyprus and they went to Galatia on that first journey, planting churches. They would go to the city. They'd make some disciples. They'd baptize them. They would teach them until they were able to stand on their own two feet. They would appoint leaders and then they would move on to another one. And we know from history as well as from parts of the Bible that those other churches would do the same thing. It's now that we've done this, we can send out Epaphroditus to go and do something else. Or we can send out Timothy to go with Paul, and eventually he'll do the work. This is the template that's laid out for us in the book of Acts. Go and build those local congregations. That's what drives the engine of discipleship. We travel, we teach, and we train people. And so that's why we're here. Isn't that kind of cool? Just take a second and think about that. Isn't it kind of cool to look back and say, we are doing the same thing that Paul the Apostle was doing 2,000 years ago. Amen. That we are actually, if you just trace it back, and I'm, I would probably lose the train a little bit along the way, but you trace it back, every church in the world goes back to a church that was planted by an apostle somewhere. Right? Because that's where the disciples were made, was in those churches. And even if, like, well, they, they broke away from that church. Okay, well, where did that church come from? And you try, trace that all the way back, we're still doing the work that Paul was doing, and Barnabas, and Silas, and Titus, and Aristarchus, and Epaphroditus. 
But what exactly do we do? What, what is Calvary Chapel Trustville's focus? As we try to make disciples, what does that look like for us? Here's how I want to look at it today to remind us as we move forward. Our job is to lead men to Christ and teach them the basics, right? The, the initial sense of becoming part of a congregation. But here's the part that we need to remember. It is our job to equip them, to equip you, to find God's will for your life and to live it out to the fullest. That sounds sort of selfish. No, it's totally not. That's actually exactly my job as a pastor, is to equip you for the work of ministry. A couple of verses for us to look at. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. I need to hear the rustle. Let's go. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Because you need to see this. You need to see this in the scripture. Because the things I'm going to make, the claims I'm going to make later, and the things I'm going to say, you need to know that I'm not just making them up. But these are coming out of the scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Now everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works, as any man should boast. It's the gift of God. Verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, and now He gives us the reason why, for good works. And here's the cool part. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Saved by grace, not by works. Brought into the family of God. Why? For good works. Do you see the little back and forth Paul's doing? We're not saved by works. We are saved for works. God is saving us so that we might go out and live a life of righteousness, doing good things. But then he gives us this really cool, mysterious piece, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means everybody in this room has a divine to-do list from heaven. God has already prepared beforehand the things that you should do, that we should walk in them. God has gone ahead in the snow drift of life, you like this illustration, and he has laid footprints out for you to walk in after him. Every single person in this room has works prepared beforehand. God, as he has planned the evangelism of the world, has factored you into the plan and he's got an assignment for you. Works prepared beforehand. Flip over to your left a little bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Who is he talking about? Each person in all the churches. So that's you, because this is one of all the churches, and you are one of each person. So he's talking about you. What does he say about you? You need to lead the life. Which life? The one to which the Lord has assigned you and to which God has called you. Put those together. You have an assignment and a calling from heaven. Our calling is for preachers and missionaries and evangelists, and I'm not one of those. No, no. Each one in all the churches has a calling and an assignment. Do you see that? Works prepared beforehand. Paul says, all I've really got to say to you is for you to find out what God has called you to do and then do it with all your heart. Your assignment, your calling from your commander and your king. How many of you have ever looked at your life and say, I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing. Maybe not now, but at some point in your life, like, okay, I've got all these years left, and I could do anything. That's kind of paralyzing. 
like a high school student looking at a long list of majors that their school offers and like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I was that guy. And the Lord used that process to help me discover my calling in the life to which I had been assigned. I'm trying to prove to you from the scriptures. Number one, you've got works prepared beforehand. Your assignment, your calling. Why do we call it a calling? Because the Lord said, hey, you. Put your name in there, right? Hey, you. I need you for this over here. This is what I need you to do. One more. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. That's going to be to your right a little ways, okay? After Corinthians, you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 1. Now, maybe you're saying, yeah, okay, we've all got works prepared beforehand. And yes, we all have an assignment and a calling, but we'll never know what those are until we get to heaven. We just have to do the best we can and hope that God sees that and accepts it and trust that God's going to steer us that way. That sounds real spiritual, but let's see what the Bible says. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Paul says, and so, so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So what is Paul praying for the Colossian church for? Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul apparently thought it was appropriate to pray that the Colossian Christians would know the will of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We know that we've all got works prepared beforehand. That's why we were saved in one reason. We also know that we've got assignments. We've got a calling. All right, I want to know what it is. Well, guess what? So does Jesus. Jesus never said, I'm calling you. To do what? <laughs> I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> I hope you figure it out. Do you try your best? And maybe if you, get, if you get there, I'll give you rewards. But if not, well, that's your loss, I suppose. That's not our Jesus. Is that how Jesus dealt with people? Well, in one sense, it was. You know which people it was? The hypocrites. People that wanted something from Jesus. People that are trying to trick Jesus found themselves all tangled up in the things he was trying to say. But when someone came to Jesus sincerely on their knees and said, Lord, help, did Jesus turn them away? No, Jesus would welcome people even when the disciples would have rather he turned them away. So Paul, the apostle of Christ, says, We have prayed that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That understanding part is pretty good, isn't it? Like, God can tell me what to do, but sometimes I don't quite understand what he's asking me to do. Or, okay, I know what you told me to do, but how am I supposed to do that? God gives you wisdom, too. So what am I demonstrating? That everybody has a life to which God has assigned him and called him. Works prepared beforehand. Footprints in the snow to follow. And Jesus wants you to know where they are. He wants you to know the reason you're alive and what your purpose and calling is. This is what Jesus did for Peter. Remember Peter was being all stuck up with Jesus in the boat? Jesus was preaching in his boat while Peter was cleaning his nets after fishing all night and catching nothing. I've fished for a couple hours and caught nothing. And uh, I know what kind of mood I'm in after that's over. And so Peter fished all night and caught nothing. Jesus is sitting there preaching. And after it's over, Jesus says, hey, let's go fishing. Peter goes, you want to go fishing now? 
says, Master, we've fished all night and we caught nothing. I don't know if anybody's explained this to you, you tourist, but you don't fish <laughs> in the heat of the day. You fish at night. But yeah, at, at your word, whatever you say, big famous rabbi teacher telling me how to fish. I've been fishing out here 25 years. You're going to try to tell me what That's fine. We'll go out. <laughs> so they get out on the water and he's like, oh, nothing, nothing, Pete, Jesus, sorry. And he goes, try it on the other side of the boat. He's like, the other side of the boat. The fish don't know. Okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> Throws on the other side of the boat and hauls it in, and the boat begins to sink, and they've got to call their partners to drag him in. And that's when Peter looks at Jesus and says, oh, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. All, everything that was wrong with Peter's heart was manifest in that story. Thinking he knew better than everybody else. Selfish, arrogant, prideful. And what does Jesus say? Don't worry. Don't, don't, worry. don't be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will catch men. You're going to be a fisher of men. Jesus told Peter what his calling was. You're going to be a fisher of men. You're going to go out into the world and you're going to draw in the nets of souls that will be saved one day. He even gave him a new name, Peter the Rock. I'm going to build my church on you. And you read that story and you go, this is the guy you want to build your church on? I don't, know, I don't even know if I'd let him help out with the sound desk, this guy. Because he might start typing like suggestions in the chat during the live stream. It's like, this is good, but have you read this passage? He's, I'm going to build my church on your ministry, Peter. And Jesus did. At the end of his life, Jesus, or before he ascended, Jesus told Peter, here's how your life is going to end. You're going to stretch out your arms and you're going to be carried somewhere you don't want to go. He was crucified. Jesus did this for Paul, didn't he? Oh, think about Paul. Well, people you might not want in your church. Saul of Tarsus watched Stephen get stoned to death. We read that story, and it about brings tears to your eyes. This righteous, godly man who only wanted the best for these people sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and there's not a dry eye in the house. And then it says, now there's this guy, Saul, who approved of all this. And you go, what? How can anybody approve of that? So there's like, yeah, hit him again. Take that blasphemer down. And so then what happened? Well, after they killed Stephen, all the church scattered all over the, the region. And they were going up to places like Damascus. And Paul found out, or his name was Saul at the time. Saul found out about this. And he says, is anybody going to go after these guys? They're blasphemers, aren't they? They deserve to die, don't they? Well, I'm going. And the high priest said, all right, finally, a young man who knows what's good. So we're going to let him go. Gives him authority to go and kidnap and drag Christians back. And he's on his way, traveling outside of his country to go and bring people home. Along the way, Jesus looks at him from heaven and goes, so, Stephen, let me ask you a question. What, what kind of Christian do you think Saul of Tarsus would make? Saul of Tarsus, Lord. I don't know about that. Like, yeah, just forgive, well, don't worry about that for right now. Just what, do you, what do you think? I mean, he's, he's so sincere. He loves to study my word. He takes it very seriously. He's not afraid to get up and go when everybody else is. I mean, we could use that, right? And Saul goes, or Stephen says, yeah, I mean, we could. But, I mean, it's gonna, what's it going to take for that guy to get saved? I mean, you'd have to, like, shine a light in his eyes and knock him off his horse and, like, get his attention. I like the way you think, Stephen. Boom! <laughs> Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I'm the Lord Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get into town. I'm going to send a guy to come tell you what to do. And he says to Ananias that he had shown Paul all the things that he must suffer for his sake. He changed his name from Saul, which was the name of the king. It was a noble, royal name, to Paul, which means little. <laughs> That's his name. 
going around, Paul. And God took this Pharisee and had him write the New Testament and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Somebody that took the word seriously and wasn't afraid to leave his homeland to do what it said. God goes, I can redeem that. He showed Paul what he was to be. Peter was the fisher of men. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what I want for you. I want you to find out what God has called you to be. And we just looked at the scripture. Don't come at me and say, well, but I don't think I have a calling. Yeah, you do. Because you're each and you're all. We've been saved by grace. And if you've been saved by grace, it means there's works prepared beforehand. And if you belong to Christ, you've got a calling. And Jesus wants you to know what it is because he gave us the example to pray and ask what it is. So that's the purpose of this church. Is yes, to bring people in and, and see them baptized and saved and taught and the basics, but then to equip them. Ephesians 4 says the preacher's job is to equip the saints like a quartermaster. You're the ones out fighting the battle. You come back in here. I hammer the dents out of your shield. I sharpen your sword. I give you a swig of water and say, now get back out there. That's the church's job. So that you can go out and do the thing God has called you to do. I want you to find out what it is. All the people in this room, I mean, look around. What if every single one of them was living the life God had called them to live 100%? What, what could happen then if that happened? That's the purpose of this church. And that's the kind of thing that gets me excited, man. When I think about this ministry here, making disciples and sending them out to go live those things. There, there's missionaries in this room that need to be identified and sent out. There's pastors in this room that need to be identified and trained and then sent out. There's people in this room with the gift of encouragement that the church desperately needs that need to be found and taught and shown how to do it and then given the chance to do it. There are those in this room to whom God has given the gift of generosity. The church really needs those people to be able to come up and to help supply and provide for all the things God wants us to do. Those with the gift of administration to help us sort out all this. To say, yeah, this is a good idea, Tyler, but here's the best way for us to go about and get that done. If we're going to take a step of faith, we at least got to know how big the step is. So let me help you with that. There are those in this room with the gift of healing and miracles. We got to find out who they are and train them so that they can learn to walk with Jesus and exercise the gifts God has given. That's the purpose of the church, of this church anyway. And that's the kind of thing that just gets me so excited. And we're going to spend some extended time here at the end of the service to pray for these things. But I want to take a minute and kind of say, all right, what is this going to look like? We've talked about who we are, right? We're supposed to be followers and obedient to the Great Commission. We talked about what we do, which is to make disciples, which is to help people find their calling and to help them live it out, give them everything they need to do it. But where are we going? This is number three for today. And as we look down this road, there, there's a, a general vision that the Lord has given to me, and, there, and there's, there's four parts to it for today. We're going to get into some specifics in the coming weeks. Let's just look at these four things. Where are we going? All right, if that's the job, what does it look like in the future? Here's number one. Number one is we got to have us a permanent location. We need to have our own space where we can do this. What's wrong with this one? Well, there's nothing wrong with it, except that we're starting to fill it up except that it's sort of in an obscure corner. And I keep on hearing people tell me, I didn't know there was a Calvary Chapel around here. Yeah. Or people that say, hey, I love that. I don't know if I'd come to a storefront church, though. That's all fine. But I see us in a place of our own, in a place where we can walk in the doors and, and feel a little bit 
small. <laughs> feel like, wow, how are we ever going to fill this? Because then we're going to watch Jesus fill that. Where we can grow and then we expand and then we grow and we expand again. Because this church needs to be big. Why do I say that? Because we're teaching the gospel. We're teaching the word. We're lifting up the name of Jesus. We're teaching folks to pray. We're singing songs that declare his name. So folks have got to know about this. Does that make us special? No, it's because Jesus is special. And we have dedicated ourselves to only and ever lift up the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. A big space means more people. Not so that they can tithe and sit in the chair. No. Because more people means more evangelism. More people means more hands to do the work of the ministry. More disciples made. It means more prayer. It means more love to share. That's what this means. And that's where I see us going. Is as we continue to do this, we're going to find more and more people. And we don't want to just keep on like packing people in and say, come on, come on, let's go. More people means better and that Tyler's doing a good job. False. That's what, here's what this means. Now we have 10 people. There are 10 people in this place fulfilling the calling of God upon their life to the fullest. Now there's 20 of us. Now there's 40 of us. Now there's 1,000 of us. Now there's 5,000 of us. What can God do with 5,000 people full of the Holy Spirit living out all the works for which God has called them to do from start to finish? Is there anything that can stop that? There's not, because Jesus is in it. So we're going to need our own spot. That's coming. We're already starting to think about it, but that's coming. Number two, this might seem odd to your ears, but it's important. Our online ministry is going to expand. We're going to do more of it to the point where we're doing daily, long, and short-form things going out on the Internet. So why are we wasting our time with that? Because there's so much garbage on the Internet. Isn't that true? Go home and look up like end times Bible study on the YouTube and see what you come across. You'll find all sorts of interesting things that Tyler didn't mention in his Bible study. <laughs> Have you considered this guy? No, I haven't actually. The world is online. That's the mission field. It's not going away, friends. We can reach more people with like a, a YouTube video than we reach in one day here. In just a couple of hours. And is, is that going to be like the whole focus of our ministry? No, but like if you're going to do ministry in 2023, friends, that's what you got to do. That's where everybody is. To put out videos and books and podcasts and to host things and put it out there on the internet for people to see. We're going to fill the internet with solid teaching and solid theology that is going to stand in stark contrast to all the weird stuff that's being peddled out there. And the Lord is going to lift it up and let people see this is what Bible study looks like. This is what sound doctrine looks like. And we already are coming across people online that are just drifting and aimless. And they find us and it's just so refreshing. Like, you're not trying to buy anything from me. You're not trying to make me do something. You're just trying to show me the truth about God. As Paul said, through the plain statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to the consciences of all men. That's what we want to see. And not only that, we have a dream here to build an online network so that not just our church, but that other churches will do it as well. Because we're figuring it out. Amen. We're just trying stuff, man. Like, seriously, we are. But there are a lot of churches that are just intimidated to try. They want to, but they have no idea what to do. So I'm like, all right, we'll go ahead. We'll scout ahead. We'll hack through the vines and the jungles. And we'll fight through the wild rhinoceroses and all the things that you find in the wild. And then we'll come back and say, now there's a path. Come with us. And so that we can not just do what we're doing, but that we can help other churches do what they're doing as well. And once we do those two things, get that... that in-person thing going in a nice big spot where the Lord can bring lots and lots of people. We're doing it online where everybody can find us all over the world. I told you we had like 30 books downloaded from India last year. No idea who they were, but they're finding us. 
This leads to number three. What do I see as we continue to do this? Every person, I see that every person who walks through that door learning to worship. Some of y'all need to learn how to worship, how to sing and praise the Lord. Learning to pray. Some of us know that we should pray, but we really have no idea how to do that. Some of y'all need to learn how to serve. How to minister in the church and not just sit and be ministered to. Some of y'all come from churches where if you tried to help, pastor would jump down your throat. That's Sister Mildred's job. How dare you take that away from her? I'm sorry, I didn't know. Or you got to go through six months of training before you can do that. Or you try to help and the pastor says, listen, this is really my job. Maybe you've been taught your whole life. It's really up to the pastor and the staff to make these things happen, not you. That's not what the Bible says. So as we get more and more people, more and more disciples coming in, multiplying, fulfilling their to-do list, y'all, we change the world that way. We change the world that way as we don't hold on tightly to things. Jesus didn't even hold on tight to equality with God, Philippians chapter 2 tells us. So we're not going to hold on tight to anything. We're going to give it away. We're going to teach people everything we know about the Bible, everything we know about prayer, everything we know about ministry for everyone that walks in, regardless of what baggage they're carrying, what their story is, what their history is, what they sound like or smell like or look like. It's like, praise God you're here. This is your first step to where Jesus is going to lead you to the life he's called you to. And that brings us to number four. Number four, we're going to fill our community. We're going to fill it. I see Alabama filled with born again, spirit filled, Bible believing Christians. Every workplace, every market, every neighborhood, every organization, every house, every church filled with people, disciples living out their calling. Just think about it. What What would that look like? You don't even need a bunch of them. What if you had like two at your job that were taking very seriously their calling? What if you had enough people in this neighborhood that realized, I'm not called to go to Zimbabwe. I'm called to come right here. This is my mission field. This is the tiny little flock that Jesus wants me to help shepherd. And they start taking that seriously. And they start living out the character of Christ in that place. And the children start to realize that. And they start to wonder, what is it about Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so that is so attractive in that way? I want to be like them. The parents that come by and say, what is it that you're doing that makes your kids act that way? Say, it's Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus? What about in your workplace? Well, they, they don't tell us, they don't let us talk about things, and we have weird training that we've got to go through, and if we don't do that, we can lose our jobs. Well, what if Jesus fills that place with a bunch of people that are not only the best employees that place has, but they're spirit-filled believers? And it's like, sir, we've got to put a stop to this training program. No, no, corporate mandated it. I'm telling you that if we do this, we're going to lose him, 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 and her. That's like everybody. Yeah, I'm just telling you. These Christians, man, they're, they're the best people we got. we got to stop messing with them. How about the halls of government? What could the Lord do with like three or four spirit-filled believers in Congress? Some of y'all are a little less optimistic about that one. I can tell it right now. <laughs> How long does it take God to turn an unrighteous government to a righteous one? It takes one day. We're going to read through Judges and Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. We're going to see God doesn't need time. He just needs people that are willing when the moment comes to say, yes, Lord, I will go. Imagine this. If every neighborhood in this city has people that are, have met in the church, they save themselves for marriage, they begin to have children, they raise those godly children in the training and admonition of the Lord, going about their lives and, and fulfilling their calling as Jesus has told them to do it, teaching their kids to do the same thing. Now you have another family that does the same thing, and now another one, and now another one. That This will be unrecognizable. 
It's not even that we live in such a bad spot, but we'll look back at it and we'll say, how are we ever okay with this when God could have done this? That's what this ministry is, brothers and sisters. We're going to be citizens of God's kingdom who are going to occupy territory that the devil dares to claim. It's like, no, you can't have this anymore. We're here. And that's what this is. This is why we teach verse by verse. This is why we pray together. This is why we go out into the community. This is why we have things like the, the teacher training program. And this is why we have the sound desk that prepares all those things so that we can get it online. It all works together. And when we all come together using our gifts, the body functions as a healthy, normal body. And there's nothing that can stop that. Because Jesus said the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. But the routine of ministry of day-in, day-out church can cause you to lose sight of that goal. So you've got to ask yourself, you're here. I'm so happy you're here. But do you want to just come and get your blessing and get fed and then, and then just that's it? That's kind of what I do? I'm not going to kick you out, but wouldn't you rather be part of something that's going to transform the whole world? If we all come together and say, what does Jesus have for me? And you say, all right, God told me what he wants me to do. Some of you know you're just wondering when and how and where. Well, we want to help you with that too. As we study the Word, as you learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit, as you learn to pray, as we pray that God reveals the knowledge of our will with all wisdom and understanding, we know what our calling is, what our to-do list, our footprints in the snow are, and we begin to live them out. This is not a me thing. It's not me doing this. This is us. This is we. This is all of us together. This is what the Lord is leading us to do, to make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, who plant churches that make other disciples, who plant churches to make disciples. And that's how Jesus sent us out to transform the world. Let me ask you this question, y'all. Do you know the purpose for your life in Christ yet? Do you know what Jesus has called you to do with your life? Somebody in here maybe has never even considered the thought that Jesus has an opinion about what I should be doing with my life. Those basic general things, right? Love your neighbor, right? That's an obvious one. Turn the other cheek, right? Don't take insults personally. Don't commit sexual morality. We all know those. But I'm talking about for you. What has God called you to do with your life? Today could be your day that you find out why you're alive. Isn't that awesome? You find out why you're alive. The Lord has shown that to me, and y'all, there is nothing better than that, than knowing exactly why God put you here and what He wants you to do next. And my job as a pastor, and my dream, and my goal, and the thing that gets me excited about waking up in the morning is helping other people find that too. Because I know the more of us that are doing that, the more the kingdom of God will advance. We can pray for revival, and we should. We can pray for evil to be pushed back, and it should. But the best thing we can do is live the life to which God has assigned us and called us. Because then that's going to spread out. The little ripples are going to feed off each other until it's bigger and bigger. And now there's a tsunami. There's a wave taking over the culture because the Lord has taken over his people. We are here in obedience to the commission. We're here to make some disciples.